If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to be in verses uh, 27 through 31. Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 763. 763 in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, and also the words uh, to it are also, to our text are also in your uh, bulletin that you received. So whichever way you uh, get God's word open before you, I just encourage you to have it before you as we get into his word. Uh, but before we uh, go to his word, it is uh, only fitting and appropriate that we pray and ask his blessing, ask his hand upon us now as we open it. So let's pray together. God, we open your word and we uh, plead, we ask that you would give us insight into your word. Help our eyes to see things that perhaps we've never seen before. And yet, Lord, help us. We, we don't just want insight. We don't just want knowledge. We don't just want uh, 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 the ability to handle our Bibles better, although this is vastly important. But we want to be transformed by your word. And we pray that you would do this within us by the work of your spirit and his work through us, bringing the word to life and causing it to grab hold and reach deep into our hearts and transform us. We pray this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, after 22 years of playing professional football, Tom Brady has called it quits. Brady redefined greatness in the NFL, doing things that had never been done. You're probably familiar with many of them. Seven Super Bowl titles, multiple MVP awards, all of the significant career passing records. But the thing that seemed to set Brady apart from all other football players was the longevity, the length of his career. Most quarterbacks in the NFL, even the best of the best, retire somewhere between, say, 35 and 40. Some of them push the bounds and and get to 40 or even 41 or 42, but even then they, they seem to be just a shell of their former self, and it is sad watching their career end on such a down note. But not Brady. Not Brady. This year, as he played at the age of 44, he was still setting records and he was in the conversation for the league's most valuable player all the way until the end of the season. Now, if you're familiar with Brady, you know what the secret to his success is as he thinks of it. You're familiar with the TB12 method with its vigorous attention to peak physical health, including a highly regimented diet that is stuff of legend. I don't know everything that he eats. But apparently he doesn't eat strawberries because they aren't good for him. And I do know enough to know that if strawberries aren't, are, are too bad for your health, then you're just living in a different world than I am. Kale, quinoa, avocado ice cream, energy recharging pajamas, pliability, these are all tools of Brady's trade. And make no mistake that the energy recharging pajamas are a real thing. You can find them online for ninety nine ninety nine. And you laugh, and these may sound otherworldly to you. But as Brady employed them to defy the physical wear and tear that aging and playing violent professional football brings, I put before you the question, how do we defy the wear and tear that life and its hardships brings upon our hearts 
and our souls? The answer is not in pliability or avocado ice cream. We need a superhuman discipline far greater than changing our diets. We need the superhuman discipline of waiting well. Yes, of waiting. In these days of Amazon Prime, the other day we ordered something on Amazon Prime and it got to our house like three hours later. It was astonishing. In these days of Amazon Prime, DoorDash, on-demand, smartphones, and everything else that works against us having to wait, waiting is actually one of God's most powerful tools for growing His people. In fact, what I'm going to argue for you from verses 27 to 31 is that God uses our waiting on Him to transform us. Let me say that again. God uses our waiting on Him to transform us. I invite you to follow along as I read from Isaiah 27. Or excuse me, Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. If you're new to the Bible... The large numbers are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verse numbers, so we're in chapter 40 and we're going to begin, and you see the smaller verse 27, we'll begin there through verse 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's Word tells us, brothers and sisters, that He uses our waiting to transform us. We're going to walk through this passage. We're going to see kind of three guideposts as we walk. Verse 27, we're going to see how despair disorients us. Verses 28 and 29, we'll see how truth reorients us. And in verse 30 and 31, we're going to see how waiting transforms us. First, despair that disorients. Despair that disorients us. Look in verse 27. There's there's something subtle, but I believe something necessary for us to see as we look at this. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Now pause here. Why does God use two names, these two names, when addressing His people? Well, there's clue to understanding what He's communicating by these two names, Jacob and Israel. You might be familiar with the story of Jacob from back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 32, uh, particularly, Jacob found himself in a place of spiritual confusion. His life felt listless, He came from a family of servants of God that at times in the family history they had seen God's great power at work in them and surely it was a story of family lore that was passed down. But as a young man setting out on the course for his own life, 
the faith of his family was not entirely his own. Perhaps you can resonate with that. Your family believes something and you kind of go along with the flow, but it's not quite your faith. Like many of us, Jacob had his highs and he had his lows. The faith that he somewhat believed in was convenient at times, but other times it seemed to be the path of least resistance, so he trudged along, but with no meaningful commitment. But then, in Genesis 32, in the midst of a great personal crisis, Jacob found himself caught up in a mysterious event in the midst of a sleepless night where he wrestled with a figure that seemed to be God. And he wrestled with him throughout the night until Jacob was partially injured. And what he says is that he had come face to face with God and found him to be trustworthy. Found him to be life-giving. Jacob left that encounter with God with a limp from a night of wrestling. But he left that encounter, though limping, spiritually stronger and more mature than he had entered. So what does this have to do with the people of God that Isaiah is addressing? There are people in exile, far from home, probably feeling as if they were far from God's mind or far from His attention. Probably feeling like, we're here in Babylon, God dwells over His people in Judah and Jerusalem and on Zion, and we're so far away, does God even see us? This is why they're saying, look at the end of verse 27, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. But God says at the beginning, why do you say this, Jacob? Why do you say this, O Israel? He's saying to them, your history as a people, as not just a people, as my people. God's speaking to His people, my people. He's saying to them, you know the stories, you know the life, you know the experience of over and over, century after century of wrestling with God. Will you believe Him? Will you trust Him? And so now we fast forward into today. We say, well, what does this have to do with me? The Christian life is one of continually facing the question, will I trust God? Do I believe that He is who He says He is in His Word? Or do I believe that He has perhaps shown Himself to be unfaithful in regards to the promises of His Word? Perhaps you even can enter into this room today and you have thought, you can call to mind instances, circumstances, trials that you walked through where you said, my way is hidden from the Lord. In fact, I'd be so bold as to say that all of us who profess to be followers of Christ, if we have been Christians for any length of time, any substantial length of time, we can all probably call to mind times where we had these kinds of questions. One time I was driving through a terrible storm, a strong downpour, uh, personally the strongest one I had ever experienced. Cars on the interstate were slowed down to 25, 30, maybe 35 miles an hour. And I was driving a car that was unfamiliar to me. And no matter what knob I turned or direction I turned it, I couldn't seem to find the windshield wipers in that moment as quick as I wanted to. A few moments of a windshield just totally splashed over with water felt like hours and felt like impending doom finally i got the windshield wipers on and they started working correctly 
But between the violent rain and the not helpful comments and remarks by those that were in the car with me, it was nerve-wracking. It was disorienting. What are the storms that disorient you? What are the ones that fog up or clog up your windshield and cause you to think that the future looks dark and violent and stormy? Perhaps you have a job that you feel is a dead end. A career that you feel is dead end. Or a career that you feel that that you are just wanting to wait. You're waiting and hoping it gets jump started. The waiting is the dead end. Perhaps you could say these same kind of things about your marriage or about a relationship that you were in. You feel as if it's dead end or you feel as if it's stuck in neutral and can't get going anywhere. What is it that prompts you to say, my way is hidden from the Lord? Do you realize when we say this that we are saying that we believe our lives are beyond the care, beyond the attention of God? Perhaps even if you were honest, if we were giving truth serum, and we took out all the churchy answers that we want to give whenever we're gathering with the church, you would maybe say, I've entered this room today, and have I entered it with the conviction that I could line up all the events of my life, and I think I could make the case that God simply does not notice or He does not care. Or maybe even at worse than that, I think I can make the case that he has it out for me. Is that you today? If so, Isaiah 40, 27 to 31 is for you. You know the kind of person that bothers me? It's always dangerous, right? <laughs> All right, here we go. It's a person who can solve a Rubik's Cube. I saw a guy on a video uh, just yesterday uh, on YouTube who had headphones on, music playing, he had a blindfold on, and on top of the blindfold, somebody was holding a piece of paper over him. So he was doing totally blind, solving a Rubik's Cube, and he solved it in 23 seconds. I can't stand that guy. Never even talked to him. I've seen him on a video. I know he needs to be humbled in life. Just kidding. I don't know anything about him, but... People who solve Rubik's Cubes, they're, they're arrogant, they're stuffy. They, break, they, they solve these without breaking a sweat. I'm the kind of guy, I look at one and I try to, do a, try to do it a little, but a combination of incompetence and impatience is always my downfall. Perhaps you feel like sorting out the hardships of your own heart or like you're trying to do a Rubik's Cube. And you're blindfolded, you have headphones on, playing music extremely too loud, but even beyond that, you've also got one hand tied behind your back you're disoriented by your despair and it feels as if God is too far out there and you are too confused right here and like that car driving down the interstate you might be driving slowly but let's turn on the windshield wipers and let's keep going what is the key to unlocking our disorientation and reorienting towards the right perspective of God and ourselves it's to look at truth in verses 28 and 29 After asking these probing questions, why do you say this about your relationship with me, O Jacob and Israel? Why do you say I've disregarded you? Why do you say that you that you feel as if your way is hidden from me? God then asks them or says to them in verse 28 and 29, have you not known? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. I love the beginning of verse 28. It's almost as if the Lord through Isaiah is saying, do you not remember the stories that you heard in Sunday school? Do you not remember the God of whom you sang with the choir of the saints Sunday by Sunday by Sunday? Do you not remember the preaching of God's word that you sat under week by week? Do you not remember the God that you told your children about? Look at the attributes of how he is described. Verse 28. He is eternal. The Lord is the everlasting God. There has never been a time in which God did not exist. And there will never be a time in which God will not exist. He simply is. You need this. I need this. When day after day of mundane piles up, and you look around and wonder if anyone notices. But He is not just eternal. He is not just everlasting. But He is our Creator. And Creator of all things. The creator of the ends of the earth. The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. Every aspect of this world and the worlds beyond this world has been spoken into creation by Him. For a people who were far from home and far from any familiarity, the God who ruled over them at home, they needed to know He ruled over them in Babylon. And maybe your journey... In life, and your spiritual journey has been one that has taken you from the home of Judah in Jerusalem to your own personal Babylon. And you need to hear today that you have not drifted too far from the sight and the reach of God's mercy. He does not faint or grow weary, He is inexhaustible. In fact, these words, faint and grow weary, are all over these verses. Just look from this point in verse 28 through the end of verse 31. I'll read through this. When I'm going through my Bible, I like to keep a pencil with me. And if I see a word repeated time and time again, I say, okay, there's something important here. So in my Bible, I've circled all the times faint or grow weary are mentioned in these verses. Listen to this. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need white hot truths like this to drag us to church on cold winter mornings. Like today. Whatever day it is. Summer, winter, fall or spring. We need this kind of truth. To be the thing that causes our hearts to beat. When we wake up in the morning. Or when we want to hit the snooze button. Once or 15 times. Consider this. The inexhaustibility of God. He does not faint or grow weary. So what Isaiah is saying here, He is eternally existent. He has created all things. 
And he does not faint or grow weary. Has it ever dawned on you how much sleep tells us about who we are and who God is? Every night when you go to bed, this is an act of faith. You are laying your head down on the pillow and in one sense trusting that though you are checking out for the next six, seven, eight hours, you are trusting that you will wake up and the world will not have spun off its axis and and fallen out of its orbit and we won't be hurtling towards Mars and you wake up and see it go by. How much does sleep tell us about how, who we are and who God is? Is it not incredibly humbling that we as human beings have been created in a manner where basically one-third of our life needs to be spent, checked out? Our energy dries up. Forget creating everything. My, I get tired after mowing the yard. Our bodies wear out. God is everlasting. We consider it a good run if we've made it 70, 80, 90, 100 years. We need sleep. God lifts mountains. He moves planets. He reigns over supernovas and black holes. And He has never even blinked. Let every night that you go to sleep be an act of worship as you remind yourself that you are not God. And that God is good and that he can be trusted. How good is he that this thing? What is that? Sorry. How good is he that he can be trusted? How good is he that this thing that proves our humanity and feebleness is such a peaceful, pleasant gift? He is perfect in knowledge and wisdom. I couldn't come up with a one-word descriptor. I said he's eternal, he's creator, he's inexhaustible. I couldn't come up with one for, um, for his understanding is unsearchable. So I just say he's perfect in knowledge and wisdom. If you have a one-word description of that later on, feel free to tell me. What he's showing us here, what God is saying to the people of Judah and what he's saying by his word to us, his people today, is that he is saying your circumstances may make no sense to you. But they are entirely within the bounds of His wisdom and purposes. And hear this, dear Christian, just because God's will is hidden from you, this does not mean that you are hidden from Him. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, remarked about verses 28 and 29 that these two verses take these thoughts that we have that God is too great to care for us and they actually reorient us towards knowing that God is not too great to care but he is actually too great to fail. And so what this puts before us is, we ask the question, will I trust this God? Will I wait upon this God? Isaiah lifts high this vision of this God of Judah because he knows the painful circumstances the people of Judah are in. So as he marches them towards this call to wait upon the Lord, he first shows them the might and the majesty of the God that he is calling them to wait upon. He is the refuge to which we can run. He is our Heavenly Father to whom we pray. And the truth is that the promises of God to his people are far too great for a God who is far too small 
But what Isaiah shows us is that the promises of God are great when the God of the promises is great. So our despair disorients us, but the truth of who God is reorients us. And we can see the promises that He makes to us. Verses 30 and 31, as we see thirdly, how waiting transforms us. In one sense, I've held up this nature, this, 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 this theology of who God is. I've held this up for you in the hope that there's been an element here in us, as, as I felt even as I prepared this sermon, as I worked through this passage, of this element of, of feeling of, okay, this God, this is who He is, it looks good to me, but how do I take hold of this? How do I grab hold of these promises? Is, is, there, a, is there a 900 number that I call? Is there a form I fill out? Is there something I mail in? What is the action I take to make this my own? How do I experience this about God? Well, first, you, we, I, all of us, we acknowledge that we don't have the strength inside of ourselves to continually run the race by our own power. If you are new to Christianity, please understand. Or if you're just even becoming familiar with Christianity, you're checking it out. Please understand that this is not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of faith. We come to Christ because we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have boots. We don't have hands to pull ourselves up from. We are spiritually dead, as God's Word tells us. But God in His grace makes us alive. By the same power that He created the mountains of the earth, by the same power that He put the stars in the sky, this is the same power by which He speaks new life into our dead souls. This idea that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, this idea that we can run the race of our own strength, he says in verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Any spiritual power that you have, any spiritual resolve that you have, is vain and harmful to you if you think it rests on your capabilities, on your bright intellect. On your inherent goodness or virtue. No, part of Christianity that is true, but we have a hard time admitting it, we have a hard time coming to grips with it sometimes, is that God does the work of emptying us out so that He can fill us up, not with ourselves, but with Himself. So he says in verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord, they who wait for the Lord, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We wait, we wait, we wait. I don't know about you, but I'm not enthusiastic about waiting. I don't like growing in the midst of grief. 
Stephen, do you want to know the power of God in your life? Sure, yeah, that'd be great. But do you want to know the power of God via pain that you might experience? Mm, Not so much. Far too often we want resurrection but not cross. Yet what Isaiah is revealing to us is that God grows us not in spite of the inconveniences, the hardships, even the exiles to our own personal Babylons. But God actually ordains that these inconveniences, hardships, and even exiles are in fact tools that he, the divine surgeon, uses as he performs surgery on our hearts. You may have things that you have prayed for for years that to this point have gone unanswered. The salvation of a loved one. The deliverance from a physical ailment. The working in a situation in your home. Working in someone you love so dearly. And yet, decades have just been unanswered prayers. Waiting is hard. You may be at a point with COVID where you are just done. I've remarked to a few people recently that in some ways the first part of the pandemic provided a challenge that in its own strange way was exhilarating to address. There was a pivoting to online services. Remember those videos we sent out in the very early days? I know Neil and Natalie filmed them and uh, Ed Hedstrom edited them. Or Natalie, did you edit them? Or Ed, Ed filmed them, Natalie edited them. It's been a while. COVID's been a long time. There was worshiping outside in the summer and fall of 2020 with 26 straight Sundays outside without a weather cancellation. There was coming inside, getting all set up with air filtration systems and the downstairs set up with audio and visual. There was then there was back outside last summer and I've just found out over the last few months the exhilaration is gone. I'm ready for a return to normal. But in the meantime... We wait. If you were to survey throughout Scripture, you can take my word for it or you can go look throughout Scripture, and you found individual after individual after individual whom the Lord used mightily. I, I, I was tempted. I was tempted to even make this like a participation part of the sermon where I was going to say, call out a biblical figure that you admire. We're not doing it, but if I was going to say that, I was going to say, the Bible records long periods of waiting on the Lord in their life. Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, I'm going to cause your, your line to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, but hey, you're going to wait about 70 years before the child comes. Moses, other figures throughout the Old Testament, Jesus waited. We know very little of the first 30 years of his life after the birth near, after he's about three, four, five years old. We know very little. The disciples, the Apostle Paul, who Alice read the story of his conversion today. Are you familiar with not long after this, he would go out into the wilderness and he would have to be wait and go into this, this period of training by the Lord for a number of years before he would be unleashed for the ministry that he would have for him. Christianity is a religion, a faith of waiting. But it's not a faith of twiddling our thumbs. 
Perhaps you've been a Christian for a little while and you kind of feel like, you know, I would have thought I'd be further down the road than I am at this point. The Christian faith is funny. Many of us start the race driving 100 miles an hour, but eventually the business of life finds a way to slow us down and we reach a point where we wonder, what is actually happening with my faith? But let me share with you a profound truth that Isaiah shows us. Waiting is how we run the race. Waiting is how we run the race. No, this is not a twiddling your thumbs kind of waiting. It's a waiting that calls to mind, verses 28 and 29. So hear this with me. Uh, uh, If you look at verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. In verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. When we think waiting, we think like a board, like like, like waiting room, a little waiting room at the doctor's office or at the dentist. But what Isaiah says in verse 31 is those who are waiting for the Lord. We wait for the Lord by dwelling on the Lord. By dwelling on what verses 28 and 29 tell us about who He is and what He will do in us. It's doggedly focusing on the triune God, eternally existent, experientially powerful. God-glorifying waiting is where the Holy Spirit of God keeps your head set right on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His Gospel. This message of His life, of His death on the cross, of His resurrection, of His ascension, to the point where you are living in the balance of, of, of the pendulum there of who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He is even doing now as He reigns over us. This gives us a mindfulness of the power of His life. An awareness of the purpose of His death. A foothold to grab hold of of the promise of His resurrection. And the comfort of the sureness of His presence with us in every moment, even in the waiting now. And as we wait by dwelling upon the Lord, as we wait by gathering with the church family week by week by week, as we find that in so many ways the process of sanctification in our life is slow while the awareness of how far we have to go seems to only be increasing, we find that waiting on the Lord is the means by which we run and is the means by which we grow. But don't take my word for it. Look at verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They find a strength that is outside of them. They find a power that carries them. They find an ability to run and not be worn out. To walk and not pass out. They do this by the Spirit setting their waiting hearts upon Christ and upon the work that He is doing in them. We don't just wait with an eye towards the past. We wait with a heart set upon the future. We wait with hearts that are confident in His promises for His church and in His promised return one day. You see, we wait. We wait for the fulfillment of a relationship 
We wait for the, for the, for the accomplishment of a dream. We wait for the building of a business. We wait for the growth of a child. We wait for the healing of our bodies. We wait for the things in this life. But what we find is that in setting our hearts on Christ, we find that all the promises of the longings of our soul are guaranteed their fulfillment in Him, maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come. It's fascinating. We talk about how do we avoid aging? How do we avoid the wear and tear on our souls that a hard knock life brings? It's not in changing our diet. It's not in the greatest scientific advances. It's in the strange yet merciful gift of waiting. Because as we wait, what we find is that our Savior is not waiting. He is not waiting in the surgery that He is performing on our hearts. He is not waiting in slowly yet faithfully removing from us the vestiges of sin, the vestiges of idolatry, the vestiges of of distrust in Him. And replacing those things with a greater awareness of Him of whom we wait on. And as we wait, we are emptied of any extra baggage that we carry. And we are freed to trust in Christ. And surrender entirely to Him. Waiting on His promised return. One day. Do you want to run and not be weary? Do you want to walk and not faint? Learn to wait. And we can wait, knowing that God uses our waiting on Him to transform us. Because in our waiting, He does not wait to show us. His sufficiency, His provision, His mercy, His grace, His strength, His kindness, His goodness, His care, His direction, His power. He does not wait to show us Himself. We wait in this life and we wait on Christ. But we wait with eyes set on the promise that He has already come to us. And He is with us. And the hope that we have is a hope that is grounded. Not in what our minds and our despair tell us about Him, but what in His Word tells us He is. Let's pray together. God, as we attempt to do this superhuman thing of waiting, we pray that you would 
set upon our set upon our eyes and our hearts as we navigate life and as we navigate its complexities set upon us the Christ for whom we wait and the promises that fuel our waiting Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.